Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. At Tech Policy Press, we try to keep a close eye on YouTube, aware of the phenomenon of what legal scholar Evelyn Duick calls magic dust, the platform's ability to fly under the radar vis-a-vis other technology platforms, which draw far more scrutiny from academic researchers, journalists, and lawmakers. For instance, last year I worked with NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights Deputy Director Paul Barrett on a report on YouTube examining how it spreads harmful content and what can be done about it. And on this podcast, we recently hosted Bloomberg journalist Mark Bergen, whose book Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination, chronicles the history of the platform from its birth 18 years ago through today. In today's podcast, we're going to talk with the director, writer, and actor Alex Winter, whose new documentary, The YouTube Effect, is in select theaters now and will be available on streaming platforms on August 8th. Alex's previous documentaries include The Panama Papers, which looked at one of the biggest stories about global corruption and the journalists who broke it, as well as Trust Machine, which looked at Bitcoin and blockchain, and Downloaded, which was about Napster and the digital revolution. Let's listen to the trailer for The YouTube Effect. How did it go? I feel fun. Kind of felt good, didn't it? I'm Brookers, and I'm an internet celebrity. Hi, How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to my channel. I'm like this introverted kid. I can do this on my own, in my bedroom, upload it, people can enjoy it. Here's finally a service where if you want to get a political message out there, if you want to get some kind of message out there, I fell down the alt-right rabbit hole. You can use this platform. You're not going to be able to turn on the TV and be able to see this. Web giant Google will pay $1.6 billion to gobble up YouTube. The uh, the making of YouTube. Here's your new key to the new office. There was no doubt in my mind that this was going to be a huge trend of the future. YouTube celebrities are laughing along with their fans all the way to the bank. This kid, Ryan, who earned $22 million this year. They want growth, growth, growth. Everything's about growth. Go hit that like button. They are obligated to maximize shareholder value. Ad money, that really affects the kind of content that you can make. Their lust for hijacking people's attention. You just have to get eyes on the video. Everything on YouTube changed when the recommender algorithm was introduced. It's not just algorithmic, it's very deliberate. I'm a weapon. I'm made to be thrown at you. I think YouTube is a very intimate format. You're watching one person talk to you. When they start telling you about their beliefs and views, that pack a real punch. Now we're in this sort of misinformation apocalypse. I don't agree that it is just a reflection of society. It's changed society. This is just made up by Bill Gates and them. Go online and look it up. It's kind of dangerous how we are just waiting for there to be enough of these digital car crashes and this digital intersection with no stoplight. If we don't figure out this problem, we're going to lose what it means to be human. This is 
Alex Winter. I'm the uh, director of the new documentary, The YouTube Effect, which is out in theaters now and just streaming on August 8th. Alex, can you describe how this film fits alongside your other works? You've been concerned about technology issues for some time. How do you see this as sort of extension of your efforts to investigate the space? I think on a couple of fronts, you know, I've been looking into the rise of online community from, for a very long time, since I first got online in the mid eighties, back in the BBS era. And, uh, my first documentary was about the rise and fall of Napster, which while certainly was significant in terms of what it did to the record industry and, and, the, and the media component to many of us was mostly significant because of this, the first time we had put a hundred million people online at the same time in history and during the dial-up era, which is crazy to think about now. And the implications of that, once you start putting lots of people together without guardrails, without gatekeepers, kind of democratization of culture, a lot happens. So there's a lot of implications. A lot of those are positive. I would say up till very recently, most of those changes were positive. Look to what happened to the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement and the ability for marginalized voices to be heard. But I was seeing the rise of YouTube, which is really Google's media front end, and not really seeing much in the way of discourse around its rise and the implications of it. It was often being talked about as a social media platform, and it's way more than a social media platform. So that was what made me want to look at it. Gail Ann Hurd, the producer, actually came to me. She'd seen some of my other tech docs in this area and asked me if I wanted to collaborate with her. And I'd been looking at Google for a long time, so it felt like a good time to do that. I understand you focus on the business machinations of Google. How do you situate that in the kind of broader internet ecosystem? What has YouTube become as a kind of corporate force? I think that it gets mischaracterized as a social media platform. And I think often left out of the conversations around the applications around media, social media platforms because it has grown uh, to be so vast and so all-encompassing, uh, unlike really any, I think it's without precedent. I don't think we've ever had in modern history a, a, a single place that captured most of the world's eyeballs and ears that was almost all of humanity's recorded content, all of our news, all of our media, all of our you know, entertainment, and then add to that a kind of a, a collective communal social media component so I think that it has grown from being, I think the hint of this happened from the beginning. And I think to be, you know, to be, to credit Susan Wojcicki and other people at Google, I think back at the beginning when they were looking to, to buy this company, I think they saw its potential like genuinely. And I think it was a good thing. I think that their vision of what this could be and how it could bring people together and how it could give voice to, to a lot of people who currently did not have one. I think those are all very, certainly they were monetary. It was like this could make a fortune, sure. So there were business incentives, but I think there was a, gen, a genuine excitement to make something that would do, you know, it, bring about positive change. I don't think anyone really foresaw, because nothing is like this has ever been attempted before, anyone saw the, the, the massive level of influence it would have on the planet cutting to like 2015, 2016. And I would say personally culminating with the Christchurch shooting in 2019, where you literally had, you know, a shooter who committed, you know, murderous acts of violence specifically influenced by this specific platform. And I think it was kind of a watershed moment that, that showed 
that sort of proved to many of us who were beginning to have uh, issues with, with some of the content that there would be real world harms and that there would be significant harms. As you think about YouTube and its global reach at this moment, having conducted this investigation, produced this documentary, mm-hmm. are there solutions? Are there reforms? Are there things that you think could happen uh, that mm-hmm. would potentially address some of the, the harms that you see? Yeah, I think that there are broad things that can be done. I think that while content moderation is hard and I don't have any illusions about the difficulty of it, it is doable. For instance, they were they were not allowing content that was pushing the stop the steal movement until about 10 days ago. And then they literally turned that button off and allowed it all back on again. They said they weren't going to, to silence that content anymore, just as we head into an election year. So better content moderation is, despite all claims to the contrary, doable and should be done. People suing, I think we get into this with Carrie Goldberg, uh, for harms is doable and I think actually very effective. Reforming Section 230 is, you know, I probably, you know, I I have a lot of respect for Hani Farid and and people who are way smarter than me um, who are talking about reforming 230. I am um, a little nervous about, about tampering with 230. I think it's an extremely important set of protections that keeps the internet functioning and mostly prevents sort of more censorship from happening on a, on a larger scale. But there's probably reform around 230 that would help. The big ticket item, in my opinion, is antitrust and eventually probably breaking up monopolies. And I think that that is, while in my view, what will probably be the most effective tool it is the most difficult, and I don't see that happening anytime soon, and I don't see any movement uh, of any significance in that direction at all currently. You did interview a number of folks whose names have appeared across Tech Policy Press's uh, pages and, of course, in this podcast in the past. Hani Farid is one. Carrie Goldberg is another. Brianna Wu is another. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular story in this documentary that exemplifies its message, one that you were most excited to see reach the public? There's a few. I think that depending on sort of what issue you're, you're talking about, there is a Caleb Kane kind of looking at the world post the YouTube recommender algorithm, post the kind of world of the rabbit hole to what are the harms that are happening now? How do we help each other? What sort of parasocial relationships actually cause damage that are beyond an algorithm? I think that was really significant for me because it showed me a lot about how we should be talking less about algorithmic issues and more about very specific human business model decisions that are being made that are causing harms. So for that reason, I think Caleb's story and how it intersects with Natalie Wynn's story is very significant to me. But in the scope of what we're discussing, because all the stories kind of point to this, I think Carrie Goldberg and her, in my view, very noble and courageous and relentless attacks on these platforms for causing specific and individual harms, I think kind of lies at the heart of the story in terms of once you get past an algorithm, once you get past looking at this stuff in this kind of technological way, once you get over the fact that whether you like it or not, these platforms and and new technology is not going anywhere, like you can't just put your iPad down and go outside and it's not going to solve anything. You're just complicit in making things worse. Um, I think what Carrie is doing and the sort of the story of someone who's going up against such a Goliath is very impressive because I think it, it will actually help to cause change. Can you speak a little more about what Carrie's doing? 
Sure. I mean, the example that we have in the film is she's actually been assisting Andy Parker. I don't know if they're actually currently working together on on the case, so I don't want to misrepresent it. Andy Parker's daughter, Allison, was a newscaster who was shot on camera and killed. And that video ended up all over YouTube. And Andy's been trying to get that content taken down. So Carrie, we sort of covered Carrie working on farms based on these platforms to individuals. And uh, what Carrie, I think the best way to characterize what she's doing as a, as a layman is she's looking past Section 230. She's looking past these technologies, and she's looking at them more as products that that are capable of causing harm. And so she's suing them in that regard. And I think it's brilliant. I think that that the the current discourse around both AI and and social media and and media online media platforms that sort of makes them seem like these you know it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, right? <laughs> these sort of magic boxes that you know AI is just going to come and kill us all, and it's an sentient you know, code that that's impenetrable and unstoppable. And, you know, the algorithm is, is this thing that will, that will turn you into a, into a Nazi just by gazing into the, the, the light. And I think Carrie's doing a very good job of getting past that and just saying, look, these are human beings behind systems that are technological or, but they are, are created and run by people with incentives. And when they cause harms, we should be going after those people. And I think that's right. Was YouTube itself or Google helpful to you in the production of this documentary? Do you feel that they were reasonably transparent? Uh, I do. I think that, I think to be fair to them, that they are swept up in the, in the radical and seismic expansion of their company, meaning Google, because YouTube is owned, owned by Google and is influence. And I think that you know, they're a publicly traded company. They have share, shareholders. They have people running the company who don't want to uh, cripple it from a profit standpoint and don't want to slow its growth and don't want to give up the the the, the prominence that they have. You know, in terms of users, uh, not in terms of market cap, but in terms of users, Google is the largest tech company on the planet. They have They have more people engaging with their product than any other tech company because of, of the users and the reach of, of Google being the number one most visited site and YouTube being the number two in the world. So I, they were very accessible to me. I think they were as cautious as I expected them to be. I, I'm, not the, I'm not really a gotcha doc filmmaker, so I had no interest in, in wagging my finger in anyone's face. I think the facts speak for themselves and people speak for themselves. But they were, I have to say, I encountered no pushback from them and I was very clear about what we were doing. But if, you know, Brianna Wu says it in the film after Christchurch and other crises, Google has been very quick to put together task forces to try to deal with some of this stuff. They often do, due to a number of reasons, go nowhere. So I wasn't really expecting Google to be obstructive. Were you able, you think, to get a sense of the sort of international scale of some of these effects that you're talking about? I mean, one of the things that kind of constantly is a concern in the accountability community that I talk to most often is that, you know, any of the harms that you might identify around YouTube in English language or in Western countries is magnified or amplified in non-English language countries, and that the company itself puts far fewer resources against those issues. That I agree with. I'm not coming on here you know, as a, as a, the expert of all experts, but if, in my experience, I don't know if I would say that, that YouTube's issues are amplified elsewhere to a degree larger than they are 
amplified here at home if they are American-based content, right? Obviously, YouTube is a global platform other than China where it's basically turned off. And and so, yes, if you have you know influencers or content that's related to those areas, but it's true, it's absolutely true they have less resources elsewhere. I would expect to some degree for that to change um, because they are growing uh, radically as, a, as an international uh, entity and they are making huge inroads around the world, even just in terms of their data centers and things like that. But I do think that the the scale of YouTube, the the sheer staggering number of people outside of the US, their home base, that, that have eyes on this content makes its influence very, very worthy of scrutiny <laughs> internationally. And that was something that we were interested in doing. And they were stats that we were interested in looking at. I'm speaking to you on the day that uh, Donald Trump has announced that he has received a target letter in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into uh, his role in January 6th. And I know that you uh, at least briefly discussed this in, in the film. Um, the role of YouTube in election misinformation. You've just mentioned, of course, that YouTube as a policy matter has decided no longer to remove videos related to the 2020 election. Is there something that you think about with regard to 2024 as you kind of look ahead? Uh, what are you looking for around YouTube's behavior, how it will position itself going into this next election cycle? I am not highly optimistic if they were to do the right thing, the right thing would be the con- type of content moderation they were already doing that they stopped doing around preventing stop the steal propaganda from disseminating as we as campaigns are literally beginning and have begun. Uh, so we are, are already in an election cycle, as we all know, heading into 2024. It's going to be coupled with the rise of AI deep fakes, which while they are often easily rejected or dismissed. Sometimes they're not, and they've gotten more significant. And YouTube is a visual platform. So that's going to be an issue to add on top of it. So better content moderation, which while they claim they can't do it, they've already done it and undone it. So we know they can do it. Deplatforming, extremely provocative and, and I would say violence inciting channels, despite highly being highly monetizable, like Steven Crowder, who after the FBI first went to Mar-a-Lago to investigate Trump's, you know, cache of, of classified documents, Crowder went on to his millions and millions of followers and called for civil war. And that's a heavily monetized channel by YouTube with enormous, probably dark money funding behind it. So they should not be allowing that kind of content. Just, I think they really need to start looking at themselves, which they, I don't believe they're going to do this. If they want to have their cake and eat it too, if they want to function on a business model that's basically was created during the newspaper era and then rose up during radio and TV, which is an ad-based model uh, attaching ads to content that's then pushed forward by algorithms and advertising and everything else, then they have to have standards of practices like any media company that does that. So during an election year, you shouldn't be letting somebody who's obviously funded by the far right to be calling for civil war against the left. That's kind of basic standards and practices. And they don't do that. So they kind of get to, they want to have their cake and eat it too, which I understand their shareholders want to continue to make lots of money. But I think that looking globally, because there's lots of little things you could do, 
looking globally at YouTube, I'd say moving to 2024, having some set guidelines for standards and practices and a more aggressive approach to preventing that type of content because people look, I'm not being hyperbolic. People are going to get killed. They are, you know, someone's going to get, if not, you know, several people, if not many people are going to get killed because of this stuff going all the way through the 2024 election. And it's, it is avoidable. I want to ask you about another topic, which is not covered in the film, but of course, which you and others in your vocation are dealing with at the moment, which is uh, the strikes in Hollywood. Streaming, of course, is a, a major point of contention. How does YouTube play into uh, the current situation? Well, Google and YouTube, they are the front runner in the rise of new technologies that have completely upended the entertainment industry as, as well as many other industries. Some of that ha- disruption has been positive. Uh, you know, YouTube's early and determined approach to giving voice to marginalized communities, to people in other countries, to LGBTQ. You know, there were very, really big and successful trans influencers on YouTube long before the entertainment industry woke up and started giving them roles in TV shows and and any attention. So I think that you can credit YouTube in a lot of ways for the diversity pushes that began to take hold several years ago before our industry did it. And I think our industry did it because, unfortunately, not due to nobility, but due to a fear that they were going to lose a lot more industry to YouTube and other platforms like that. The labor issues that we have in the industry right now are directly related to changes in distribution and exhibition and production to a degree that have come from the rise of of new technologies. And like any change in industry, whenever there are sweeping changes, the workers are left behind and they, you know, the new oligarchs or the new owners of these platforms or ways forward are very quick to try to cement business practices that put as much money in their pocket and keep as much money away from everyone else's pocket as possible. And it's a very clear cut battle that we're in and it's existential due to the strike which was necessary, and the work shutdown, which was really caused by the AMPTP refusing to come to the table, a lot of people are going to leave this industry and not come back. I mean, it is going to be a, a, a seismic change to the way our industry works. And a lot of people can't afford to continue to work in this business. And honestly, even with whatever negotiating terms come along, they're going to still be unable to work in this business. So there's going to be, I would assume there's going to be huge shrinkage across our industry in every area. And as you well know, because this is not rocket science, this is a labor crisis, right? This is going to be the case with many people in many areas of business over the next five to 10 years. How has YouTube changed the way you make films? I mean, I preparing for this interview, I watched the trailer on YouTube. I listened to you give a keynote address on YouTube. I watched other artifacts of your talks at various openings on YouTube. How has it changed the way you literally do what you do? I mean, the positives have been profound and continue to be. You know, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm a tech agnostic. I, I really don't believe we should get off these platforms. I think we should continue to engage with them. We should just understand how they work and be discerning about what we're doing on them. And we should, we should fight to make them more accountable. But I use Google all the time and I use YouTube all the time. And YouTube is has completely democratized the way, I mean, the the gates were so high to get into this industry when I came up in it. And it still, you know, requires a certain amount of privilege. You still need to be able to afford an iPhone, afford internet, afford 
you know, basic editing equipment. So I'm not going to be flippant and say that anyone can do this now, but certainly, you know, tens of millions of more people have access to the means of production than they did before YouTube. And YouTube has been very fair about monetizing that uh, for the most part with the creative creators. So for me, it has changed the people who work with, for me and with me, the, the culture of all of my staff and for my documentaries, uh, uh, most of our research starts there. And a lot of the best stuff we find exists there. It connects us to other filmmakers around the world. So it's sort of the way Twitter used to work before Elon Musk ruined it was you could make a connection with a filmmaker via YouTube. And then you reach out to that filmmaker or reporter or content creator or whoever. Maybe it's a kid in Ohio who happened to capture a piece of the story that you need. I can find them just with a simple search on YouTube now. And then I can, I can connect to them immediately and I can monetize them. And we do that in our docs all the time. I'll find material that I was unable to get. We'll find that filmmaker or that person and we'll pay them. We'll credit them and we'll use their material. It's so big. It's almost hard to, it's hard to, to overstate how much has changed what we do. We're on it all day long. I guess I have a final question for you, which is really about sort of trajectory of media and content on the internet. You know, you mentioned Napster, you mentioned BBSs, you mentioned the old internet that I also still remember. Of course, we're in the moment we're in. Are you able to cast your mind forward 10, 20 years? I mean, of course, generative AI is in the news at the moment, lots of interest in synthetic content and you know, automated methods of producing material. Are you able to cast your mind forward uh, 10, 20 years? What do you think things will look like for people in your line of work? I hope that the human desire for story by other humans and with all its idiosyncrasies and its flaws will still, as it has been since the beginning of recorded time, be of paramount importance to the average public. In which case, movies and TV shows and whatever that the, the identity of that media is by then is will be okay. And there will be a mixed bag of stories and films and TV shows that are written by, by people and uh, material that is more synthetically generated that has its own purpose. But I do hope that there is, that there continues to be that. And I do believe there will be. Otherwise, you will find me treading the boards back on stage, which is where I started in show business many years ago, because that's not going anywhere. But where YouTube will be and where these companies will be and what the world looks like in 10 or 20 years. Well, in 10 years, I'm not sure how much different something like YouTube will be, because I don't think regulation is going to move quickly enough to actually do much to YouTube or whatever its competitors are by then. But 20 years, I think we'll be making inroads into hopefully breaking some of these companies up and having a more equitable and an accountable landscape. Where can listeners of this podcast see this film? Well, we are out in theaters. Uh, I'm touring with the film all over the country and the world. I'm actually going to England with it um, next week. And on August 8th, we'll, we will be streaming worldwide. So you'll be able to find us almost anywhere online. But we will be posting about that. Uh, at the time, but it's, uh, you know, in like two weeks will basically be available everywhere. And I assume that will also mean on YouTube. I very much hope they don't block us there. I think it would be great if we end up on YouTube. Well, we'll look for it there or elsewhere. Alex Winter, thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, Justin, it was really great. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. 
You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to Alex Winter. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.